This is the third time since I've come to St Paul's that I've actually reflected on this passage for something. We looked at it in a, uh, an assembly and in a staff, uh, staff gathering. And then I came again to it today and every time I've been challenged anew with something. If you mark out the whole of Mark's gospel, this passage comes right bang in the middle. And it's really a turning point for the story, the life and the death and resurrection of Christ as Mark portrays it. And if you know Mark's gospel, you know that it's pretty fast paced. It doesn't waste words, it doesn't waste time, launches straight in from chapter one, pretty relentless, just miracle, healing, teaching, deliverance, one thing after another after another. But here in chapter eight at this point, it's as if Mark presses the pause button and just allows us uh, to listen in on this conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And it provides us a little bit with a glance back, but also a glimpse of what is to come. Jesus has taken his disciples away from the crowds, away from the area around Galilee, where he's been ministering for a while, and he asks them these questions. Who do people say that I am? And then, who do you say that I am? And I'm wondering if he's doing some reflective practice. I was with my uh, curate cohort um, up at London Bridge earlier this week, and we were talking about the idea of reflective practice, and that's part of our learning journey as curates and as teachers, that we, uh, we look back on the things that we've done in ministry, and we talk together about uh, what we're doing, what we should have been doing, how did it go, would we do something a little bit differently, are we getting across what we're trying to get across, and I, and I wonder, I'm sure many of you have used that practice in your professional lives, and I just, I just wonder if that some of that is what's behind Jesus' question. Because since he began his ministry, Jesus has, his whole being has been about proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. His healings, the miracles, everything has been about pointing to the Father. And he knows now that his remaining time with the disciples is short. And he's, is he asking himself, do they get it? Have I conveyed this message well? Do they understand that I am the way and the truth and the life? Do they know who I am? Because clearly some people did not. If you just a little bit earlier in Mark's gospel, we see that the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask for a sign, a sign, the the miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, raising a girl from the dead, delivering people. None of that was apparently sufficient. And even the disciples frankly, are a bit clueless at times, aren't they, in how they respond to what Jesus is doing. So Mark tells us that in answer to that first question, the disciples say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, others one of the prophets. They recognize that Jesus is someone significant, but they're not quite sure. And again, just before this episode that we read about, uh, Mark goes into detail about this man that Jesus, uh, this blind man that was brought to Jesus in Bethsaida. And uh, Jesus, there's a cat coming in at the back of church. That's interesting. <laughs> Sorry, got distracted. Um, and yes, and this blind man comes and, and, and Jesus takes him away and he lays hands on him. And then uh, says, well, can you, can you see? And, and, and they say, well, I can see, but people, they little bit, look a bit like trees. And so Jesus comes in for a second time. And, it's, and, the, and, and then he can see clearly. And it's almost, you get the same sense that Mark has deliberately put those two stories side by side. Because, again, it's like the people aren't really seeing clearly who Jesus is. They, they, they understand he's someone important, but the sight is still a little bit foggy. 
And he's, he's on his way. It says his face is turned towards Jerusalem to what lies ahead. It's really important for him that the disciples understand clearly. He wants to prepare them for what is to come. So again, he presses in with another question, just as he had a second go with the guy and the sight. He has another question for the disciples. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up, uh, maybe on behalf of the group as a whole, we don't know, but he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And then Jesus immediately says, don't tell anyone. In some uh, translations, it says he sternly orders them, don't tell anyone. Do you ever wonder why that was? And I wonder if it's because what he thinks their understanding of the Messiah is, is actually not what God's plan for his Messiah is. For the Jews, um, you will know, I'm sure, that their long-awaited Messiah was going to do a few things. He was going to restore and clean up the temple. He was going to reinstate Israel as this great nation. And he was going to be the king, like David, who ruled and brought in peace and justice and, uh, and the kingdom. And certainly, he was going to get rid of these charlatan rulers like Herod and Pilate. So perhaps Peter, by calling Jesus Christ at this point, is saying, I think you're the one who's finally going to come and clean things up around here. You're going to make us great, <laughs> make Israel great again, scary, um, and usher in this kingdom and this time and this period of justice and peace. I'm expecting big things from you, Jesus. But Jesus then turns and talks instead of suffering and death at the hands of those rogue Jewish leaders and Roman leaders. So it's not really surprising that Peter feels like I have to take him aside and rebuke him. What is this? But Jesus insists that the disciples understand and the people who are following him what God's agenda is. It's not a nationalistic one. It's a kingdom one. It's not about self-promotion. It's about self-sacrifice. It's upside down, isn't it? And it's not what they were expecting. But if Peter and other disciples are going to follow Christ, if we are going to follow Christ, we need to understand where his path leads. So a disciple is an apprentice. That's literally what the word means. And it's someone who is observing the ways of their teacher, of their master, and then imitating them. And Jesus said, if anyone wants to be my disciple... He or she must deny themselves and follow me, not to a hill and a palace, but to a hill with a cross. And there lies the path to freedom and meaning and life. Disciples are not good people trying to do good things. They're people who sit at Christ's feet and spend time with Jesus in order to become more like him in order that they can then fulfill their apprenticeship by doing the things that they see Jesus do. And if we skip stages one and two, the sitting with Jesus and becoming like Jesus, which is that work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, then step three, the doing the things that Jesus does, it, it's, it's empty. That's not discipleship, because we'll be doing things in our own strength and not in God's strength. We'll be building our own kingdom not the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Caroline or the kingdom of Adam or the kingdom of you. Is That's not a good kingdom. That's not the real deal. So coming to the other passage today from the epistle uh, of James. 
I think it gives us just an additional perspective on discipleship. At first glance, the book of James looks a lot like the book of Proverbs. James is in the New Testament and Proverbs is in the Old Testament, but there's a lot of similarity. It's full of practical wisdom. James was one of the early, early leaders of the church. Um, Possibly that James was the half-brother of Jesus, but the, the status he held was as a teacher in the church, and he really wanted to be sure that those who were following Christ understood that words without action was worthless, that true discipleship, true believing meant faith being manifest, being shown in fruitfulness. And he begins a section of the letter that we heard today in chapter three with this stark warning for those who teach others. Because the tools of the teacher's trade are words, words that carry authority just by the fact that they've been spoken by a teacher. And therefore, he says, there'll be greater accountability for those people. And it's true that everyone makes mistakes, but of course, the problem for leaders is that their mistakes tend to get repeated because they carry, the words carry authority and people will copy them. But teaching doesn't just come from a pulpit, it comes from homes, it comes from workplaces, it even comes from the internet these days. And it's not even just for those who teach adults, also for those who teach children. Arguably, greater responsibility on those of us who teach children. How many times do we hear stories of people whose whole lives the direction of their lives has been dramatically influenced by something that was said to them or said over them in childhood. I don't know if any of you follow Humans of New York. Um, I follow them on Facebook, but they're constantly bringing these true life stories of people whose lives have just gone one way or another, and very often because of a very significant thing that was said to them or yeah, that they experienced in childhood for good or for bad. So what James is saying in this letter is the words that are spoken can direct, they can direct lives like the rudder of a ship, he says. The tongue can determine the direction of a life. It can set us off on a road to life or on a road of death. So that passage from James is full of wonderful metaphors. And as I said, it's very much like Proverbs. But unlike Proverbs, I think James is not just offering words of wisdom but he's highlighting this essential aspect of discipleship. And that's discipline. Not surprisingly, uh, they're from the same root, discipleship and discipline. Problem with a word like discipline is that as soon as we hear it, we start start to think in terms of behavior, don't we? And trying to do better. And we've already said that that's not what discipleship is. That's not what we're called to. In verse 8, James is very clear that no human being can tame the tongue, but the Spirit of God most definitely can. We're still involved, though, and that's where the discipline comes in, because we choose to submit ourselves to the work of the Spirit. We choose to let the Spirit direct our thoughts and our speech. And maybe this is a good place just to remember one of the things that Jesus taught that we read about in Matthew's Gospel In chapter 15, he says, what goes into a person's mouth doesn't defile them, but what comes out of the mouth does. He's having a discussion with the Pharisees about why the disciples are eating supposedly with unclean hands. They haven't done the ritual washing, not the the COVID cleaning, but the ritual washing that was required. But then Jesus goes on to say, the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. And he then lists them. He said, that's what defiles a person. 
eating with unwashed hands doesn't defile someone. So in other words, it's the, the things that are coming out of our mouth, they're originating in our hearts and in our minds. And James picks up this idea of pollution. He talks about the tongue being a restless evil full of deadly poison, really strong language so that we take it seriously. We are polluted by, by what comes out of our mouth. We pollute other people by what comes out of our mouths. And words originate not here, but here in our hearts and in our minds. So perhaps the key to this aspect of discipleship is what are we filling our hearts and our minds with? Because it's out of the overflow of that that our, our mouths speak. Dallas Willard's written a brilliant book called Renovation of the Heart. Just this idea that we need to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in every aspect of our lives. So Jesus told us in Mark's Gospel, discipleship is denying yourself. In other words, single-mindedly being devoted to God. And James puts it like this, fresh water and salt water cannot flow from the same spring. A tree cannot bear olives. We can't be double-minded as disciples of Christ. We need to be single-minded. We need to trust absolutely that the way of Jesus is the way to life. We can't have one foot on one path with Jesus and the other foot going in another direction of our choosing. And later in the letter, James talks about dissension and disunity within the community because he recognizes that what comes out of our mouths originating from our hearts becomes bickering and gossip and slander. And like a spark in a forest, it gets out of control really quickly. And a whole fellowship can be destroyed with a careless word. However, when we're wholeheartedly devoted to God, when we're focused on him, when we're submitting to Jesus, and we're single-mindedly following him and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us, then we will have a devotion to one another. And the tongue will be used to build up one another instead of tearing down. And that's what brings glory to God. So Jesus calls us to be disciples, single-minded, disciplined, surrendering ourselves to his love and his direction in our lives. He doesn't promise an easy path, but he does promise to walk with us on the journey. When we truly belong to Christ, then our lives will produce the fruit of the spirit that's living within us. Gentleness, kindness, self-control. That's the kingdom of God. That's the good news for, those, for, our, for ourselves, but also for those who live and work alongside us. Amen.